Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is head coach Caleb Porter of the MLS Cup winning Columbus Crew. We've had some great guests lately, including Brianna Pinto and Nick Mayhew, Don Garber and Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Caleb Porter on soon. You won't want to miss that interview, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast and other destinations. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm deeply regretting not staying up on Saturday night to watch <laughs> LAFC and Club America, but I am here nonetheless. Maybe the most CONCACAF, CONCACAF game <laughs> I've seen in a while, and there's a lot to compare with over the years, but... Kind of, I, I tweeted early on in this game, pretty CONCACAF vibe so far. <laughs> and <it> only, <laughs> by the end of the first half, I think I, I was tweeting CONCACAF disgrace. Um, just... I, I, was, I was texting with a friend of mine during the quarterfinal stage. I was watching uh, Montreal Impact and Olympia. And I said, what is it about CONCACAF that draws the CONCACAF out of otherwise good teams? Like I, I watched Montreal Impact on multiple occasions. And all of a sudden, they're taking shots from 40 yards away, booting him into Rosette. It's like, there's something about CONCACAF that is a that is a <laughs> drawing force <laughs> i mean it's incredible and I, what i've learned to do is to be less outraged about it and just just to laugh because embrace it because yeah it's a little bit like embrace the chaos in mls like it is what it is it can be <laughs> highly entertaining it can be highly frustrating too but like uh, the current situation here is we're wondering if uh, a twista who was sent off is going to be allowed to play in the final because LAFC ends up winning two to one against Club America in a wild semifinal. Atuesta was sent off. It was, at, it was three to one, wasn't it? Was it three in the end? It was yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah blessing, blessing, blessing got the late one. That's right. That's right. And it was just such a bizarre moment. Memo Ochoa, who I generally have respected over the years. He's a really <laughs> good player, good goalkeeper. He hasn't usually done this stuff when I've been watching. And... He essentially runs out to Atuesta, who's on the ground, and then goads him, and then ends up making a total meal out of, if anything, was sort of like maybe a slight attempted headbutt, but didn't even connect. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Ochoa acts like he's been shot, and it ends up being a straight red from the referee. This is right before halftime. As they go into halftime, Piojo Herrera, the coach of, of Club America, gets into it with the much taller Ante Razov, assistant coach for LAFC. And, and Herrera ends up getting sent off. I assume that's what it was for, even though it was quite a melee. And then Herrera goes up in the stands with a walkie-talkie. <laughs> and... Which apparently he brings to every game just for situations like this. Does he really? Because <laughs> someone, a Mexican journalist was tweeting that 
he's seen Herrera do this before with a walkie-talkie in the stands and just assumes that he brings the walkie-talkie. That's a, that's a remarkable bit of self-awareness because he must just know, like, I'm going to get sent off in one of these games. This is going to come in handy at some point. Like, I know that I fly off the handle, a red card is coming. Let me bring the walkie-talkie just in case. I mean, the most ridiculous thing also, too, from a, from a soccer perspective is down a man, LAFC comes out to start the second half and just just kills them in the first five minutes, two goals by Carlos Vela, and it completely changes the game at that point. Ends up at 10 v 10, so not just Herrera getting sent off. And LAFC now is in a position, they're going to go up against Tigres in the final on Tuesday night. It's kind of going to be must-see television. It would be the first time an MLS team, if... LAFC wins has ever won the CONCACAF title since they moved to the Champions League format. It would qualify them to go to the Club World Cup. How big is how big a night is this on Tuesday for MLS? Well, I would normally say massive, and my first instinct was to say massive, but I do think, does the Orlando bubble make this feel any different to you at all? Because I, I do think it does, right? Because it's like going away to Mexico is the tough part of the CONCACAF Champions League. MLS teams are actually faring fairly well now when they play at home against Mexican opposition, and I think they fared fairly well in this neutral site. I think the difficult part is going to, you know, going to Tigres, going to America, going to León. That being said... The reason why I think this is different than any normal CONCACAF Champions League run is the quality of opposition that LAFC have had to play in order to get here. Basically, they're facing all the big clubs and the best teams in the country. They they faced Leon in the opening round. We've seen what they've been the last two or three tournaments. They've been sensational. They're now the champions. Uh, you have uh, Cruz Azul, who while, I mean, obviously they had the massive meltdown in the game against Leon. They, I think, finished second in the previous tournament and, and top again. So uh, they're or, or, second in second, something like that. They've been really good under Siwoldi until they sacked him. And then to face America under Miguel Herrera, it's the biggest club, in, them and Chivas are the biggest clubs in Mexico. If I said biggest, I think the Chivas fans would have been down my throat. And then you play Tigres in the final, who were kind of team of the decade, won five or six trophies. You're, you know, scared of Gignac and what he can do in a game. So it's the run for me that makes this so impressive. You beat those four clubs en route to winning the trophy, being the first to do it for MLS. So I'm kind of balancing the site and the opposition, and I would say probably the opposition wins out. It's an incredible run if they finish it. Yeah, I, I mean, a final eight single elimination tournament actually isn't really different from what the CONCACAF tournament used to be before it went to the Champions League format, and there actually were some MLS teams that won the title in that situation. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s, LA Galaxy was one of them. Uh, with Alexi Lalas, and um, I think DC United did as well. I do think that if LAFC could get past four straight Mexican teams, the best, essentially, that Mexico has to offer, I think that would be a real achievement. And so we'll see if they can pull it off. I mean, it's time that an MLS team won this tournament. And so I think that, yeah, I thought... Toronto might do it a couple years ago. They got to penalty kicks, didn't end up getting the trophy. But this would also be a recognition, if LAFC can pull it off, that of how good they've been without winning a trophy the last couple of years. I guess Supporter Shield's a trophy, so that's something. But LAFC, when they're at their best, you know, Caleb Porter's coming on here in a second. He might not want to hear this, but... 
uh, when LAFC is at its best, I think their ceiling is higher than anybody else in MLS. Am, am I wrong by saying that? I think at the moment, they're probably missing, because they've been playing Danny Musovsky up top. I mean, I think when we saw them at their best, they had Adama Diamande or they had Bradley Wright Phillips, or even kind of try to play that front three with Rodriguez, Rossi, and Vela together. So uh, I, I do think they are slightly missing that center forward element at the moment. I think they've been better, particularly with Walker Zimmerman at the back. So I don't know if they're right. quite the same team that they were when they won Supporter Shield and set the points record and Vela set the, set the goals record. But I, I still think that the impressive part of it is not only are they beating Mexican opposition, but they're outplaying Mexican opposition. That, for me, is kind of almost more of a step forward. Yes, obviously, the headlines, MLS team beats Liga MX team to win CONCACAF Champions League is an important step for the league, but I kind of think they've already hit the step. Even in NYCFC's 4-0 drubbing at the hands of Tigres, there were huge portions of that game where they outplayed them. It's just that NYCFC's chances come to Gary Mackay-Steven and Tigres' chances come to Andre Pierre Gignac. <laughs> Nothing against Gary Mackay-Steven, but those are a, a, a class of difference apart. So I, I just think that, and, and maybe LAFC is kind of the endorsement for MLS to step up their game in terms of spending. A new TV deal would certainly help in that realm as well. But I think these ambitions have to be met by increased investment in rosters, albeit not the best time to do it. But hopefully it's a signal, all right, uh, MLS teams can compete on this level and they should continue to do so even in next year's edition of the competition. 10 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday night. I'm excited for this one. I do want to shift over to Europe and first off to England. Lots of games happening in England. I was just putting together my my calendar for the rest of the calendar year here of, of games on my radar to watch. And this is the time of year when England just takes over the schedule it seems like and it's almost like they have it to themselves around boxing day that whole week post christmas it's a slight difference this year because uh some of these other leagues like spain aren't taking a real break like they typically do but it's still a lot of england a lot of games and I am wondering as we look at all these games coming if we're on the the verge of seeing liverpool pull away from everybody well, the only thing that would stop them is the surplus of games, right? That they're trying to rotate. I mean, I saw that Sadio Mane was pretty not pleased to come off, right? But when you're 4 or 5-0 up against Palace, it's like, all right, you got to take your key guys off. But that would be the only thing stopping them because they're right now the informed team. Spurs have completely hit the brakes here in terms of their form, uh, losing again uh, on Sunday to Leicester. Uh, you have Manchester City that have not really hit gear. They beat Southampton, but not terribly impressively. They haven't really beaten anybody impressively this season, save for Sheffield United, who are the worst team in the league. So you just don't have a team right now that looks an obvious candidate to step up. Chelsea has also taken a step back, and they're also dealing with injury issues of their own. So as long as there's nobody who's really kind of hitting consistent runs of form, Liverpool are the most likely to do so. And I think it's just kind of the infrastructure of Jurgen Klopp's team. I was actually, maybe one of the things that we haven't discussed enough is Klopp at Dortmund eventually, the, the, the reason why he left is because the wheels fell off, right? There was a time where he's mid-table or even below that uh, in Germany, and I think it's just, you know, it had run its course. Are you surprised that, you know, five, six years on, it hasn't run its course and actually seems to be gaining strength, and you can kind of envision a scenario where Klopp is there for 10, 15 years? Yeah, I mean, he did extend his contract last December through 2024, so I know they had been concerned that he might choose to leave after 22, and there really seems to be a good fit there. And, you know, at the end of things with Dortmund, you know, I, I actually, I read Melissa Reddy's uh, book that we're going to talk about with her on the podcast coming up here. And 
it's just very interesting to sort of see what happened at the end with Dortmund. It, that season, they were at, toward the bottom of the table at one point and ended up finishing mid-table. And Klopp announced with a few months bef- you know, before the end of the season he was going to leave. After having achieved so much at Dortmund, it was crazy. But everything I've seen suggests that according to like expectations of what actually happened on the field, that that Dortmund team should have been right near the top two or three in Germany that year, that they were one of the most unlucky teams of all time. Oh, yeah. And so it is interesting to see how that ended up, and yet Klopp is still revered so much at Dortmund to the point that in Melissa's book, she said that Dortmund actually tried to offer him again a couple years ago and see if he might entertain leaving Liverpool to come back to Dortmund. And he was like, no, no. <laughs> and, and, and in some ways, his identity has stayed at the club, but they've struggled to find a character that can replace him, right? In some ways, his his figure looms large there. It's just, for me, when I look at City, you know, four, fourth, fifth year under Pep, Pep also kind of does cycles. It, it needs to be refreshed. But Liverpool, despite not t- immensely changing their personnel, some new players have come in, but that front three is still that front three it looks the same, right? Even like when they've had massive injuries this year, particularly at the back, you know, Van Dyke being out, Alexander-Arnold, Allison, all missing stretches. They've been without Thiago, who was kind of meant to be their big addition. Diogo Jota came in, now he's hurt. Um, but when they play the academy kids, when they play, you know, a, a bunch of different guys, they're still succeeding, right? They're, they're rotating and still able to, and look like Liverpool too. It's not like they're grinding out results. They look like Liverpool too, uh, on top of a 7-0 this weekend. Another thing coming out of this week I was amused by is, I've always noticed everyone, just about everyone in England, even opposing fans like Jurgen Klopp. Like, there's very few people in in England who dislike Jurgen Klopp. Jose Mourinho, at the end of the game <laughs> against <laughs> against Liverpool, <laughs> after being like outpossessed by a tremendous amount, outplayed. Jose apparently says to Klopp that the best team didn't win. And, and Klopp, I think Klopp at first had a, this double take. He's like, did you really say that? <laughs> and, then, and then he kind of started laughing. And, and part of me is like, that's just so typical of Jose. But I actually don't mind that someone in England is trying to push Klopp's buttons a little bit because that yeah. makes it a little less universal. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I actually think Klopp's buttons have been successfully pushed that times this season. This whole thing about the fixture congestion, him banging on about it, has been pretty annoying. Um, but uh, but for the Jose thing was hilarious. Do you see that he did it again today? When, when, when they lost 2-0 to Leicester, he said after the game, the best team lost. I'm like, at this point, he's trolling, right? There's no way he actually believed this. Because I watched that game, and... Look, you know, the, the, the stats were heavily in Liverpool's favor, but there were, like, Tottenham had their chances. They should have scored them. And if they did, then, you know, they would have been, you know, in the game, right? Or maybe they would have won it. But the Leicester game, I watched basically the whole thing <laughs> while also doing an NFL show. But, I mean, I had it, you know, I, I was giving a decent amount of attention to it. I don't remember the moments where Tottenham were clearly the better team. I just, I, I don't know what he's talking about. And so uh, I think he's trying to play every card that he's got. Um, but I think uh, when you look at the points total, they're basically on pace for like a 68, 69 point season. That's basically who they are. And it's not terribly impressive. So they're dropping a ton of results. And I, I think uh, the, the, the Jose bag of tricks uh, might be running a bit thin. You know what I think of when I think of Jose lately? 
peak CONCACAF. Can you imagine Jose, <laughs> Jose like coaching either the U.S. national team at no, a— No, it'd have to, it'd have to a, be Costa Rica's—it'd have to be Costa Rica's national team it, because <laughs> that, that is a match made in heaven. But like, can you imagine, like, even like an, an away qualifier at Costa Rica, like Jose going on about Concacaf, and, and or, or even an MLS team at some point to be in a position where he could be a, in a Concacaf situation. I, I think Jose would be peak Concacaf. It would be fantastic. I want to ask you a couple of questions here. We're going to look at three teams who are struggling in Europe right now, and I just want to ask you what you think. The prescription is Arsenal is in 15th place right now. What was the, what were the numbers that uh, you had told me about their recent misery? They are uh, seven without a win. They've drawn five and lost two in the league, in the Premier League, if you factor out Europa League. I'm in the league, they're without a win in seven. They're on pace. They're on one point per game, which is on pace for a 38-point season. They're in 15th, sixth bottom of the league. And it's just... I cannot believe how bad they are. And I, I know, right? Arsenal have been mediocre, right? But mediocre is you get to 55, 60 points, you get near a Europa League place. That's relegation. In previous years, remember 40 points used to be the mark that you had to get to. In previous years, 38, a 38 point pace is relegation form. It's only that Brighton, Sheffield United, Fulham, and West Brom are so bad that, uh, that you're, you're not sucking them into the danger. But I cannot believe how bad and how insipid they are. I mean, I supported hiring Arteta when he was passed over for Emery. So I was still on board. Here was a guy who not only had a, a history at the club, but more importantly, had spent the last several years with Pep Guardiola, trusted Guardiola guy, knows how that system works, uh, has had success, by the way, individually against Guardiola with Arsenal, at least in terms of knockout competitions. But it hasn't translated yet and and I'm I'm wondering what Arsenal's missing. I mean it's it's obvious to note that a guy like Aubameyang's not really scoring goals uh much this season. Uh some of these transfers like Pepe haven't worked well. Um lots of own goals. Uh like every Arsenal fan I talk to is in this funk about like they'll still watch but they don't really want to. <laughs> it seems like, like <laughs> what 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 in particular yeah, what do they need to do? Uh, for me, with with Arteta, it's just the fact that they're boring, right? And they're they're trying to commit to a style of play without really any end product or end goal of it. And and it's it's startling to watch because I think he, as you said, comes with this pedigree, right? He's been you know a coach that worked under Guardiola that had got off to a good start, pulled off some really good results against Liverpool uh, in winning in winning you know the FA Cup. Uh, you know, knocking out Chelsea in the final day of, of of that tournament. Like, he's had some good results, but the actual infrastructure that's being built seems to be getting worse, not better. And obvious, and the obvious thing is that uh, I think Arsenal do not have a sustainable means of spending a lot of money, right? Because it used to be they needed to be in the Champions League every year to spend money. And ever since they've been in the Europa League, they've tried to cobble it together, but they keep sinking themselves further and further, uh, deeper and deeper, because they're not selling anybody. They're not making major sales. They're not developing players to the academy that other clubs want and spend a lot of money on. Like Alex Iwobi is probably their biggest sale. So they just don't have a sustainable model of success right now. And as every season goes by, that foundation gets shakier and shakier, and they trust 
shakier and shakier pieces, right? Even Arteta is a first-time manager. In theory, the Arsenal job should go to an experienced coach who's, you know, on the way up, not, you know, someone having his first job in management. So between players and manager, I just think they're trusting people. There's been a ton of overhaul at, at, at board level, and not at board level, but at executive level. And they've tried to overturn the organization to be leaner and thinner, including promoting Arteta from first-team coach to manager, who's now in charge of transfers. This is someone who's no experience being asked to do a job that he's kind of unqualified for. So uh, there's a whole breakdown in that club, and it really is startling to see a team that, you know, used to have title aspirations, then, you know, was like, oh, I guess we'll finish fourth every year, now being in 15th. Yeah, I personally don't think they're going to find themselves in a relegation battle here, in part because the teams that are below them are are pretty bad. But you also don't want to be in a situation, if you're Arsenal, where you're maybe not even getting into Europa League for next year. And and just being kind of like a, a boring team in 10th or 11th place isn't what Arsenal should be. So let's talk about another team, Borussia Dortmund, where I watch, you know, I can't watch every game. I watch a lot of Dortmund's games. I, I do because Gio Reyna is involved. I do because they're, they've got a lot of fun, emerging young players and they get played, you know? And, and, and one reason maybe why Dortmund has been struggling a lot lately is Erling Holland has been out, injured. Um, you know, like, I, I, the pattern I'm noticing though is like really young Dortmund guy scores a great goal in a game that they eventually lose to a team yeah. that, that shouldn't be beating them. So like, that's been Gio Reyna couple times recently and then Yusufa Makoko youngest Bundesliga goal scorer ever in this last game against Union Berlin just turned 16 scored a ridiculous goal they end up losing again and and now they have you know they just fired Lucien Favre as their as their manager and they're all they're like what is it eight points back I mean they're off the pace now in Germany and in danger potentially of of just being out of it pretty early. I'm surprised that in the aftermath of Klopp leaving that you would think, I mean, there's so many up and coming German coaches, right? I mean, Marco Rosa, Gladbach and Nagelsmann ended up going from Hoffenheim or he impressed to Leipzig. Like, why isn't he going to Dortmund? Especially when you consider that now their reputation is they're the best club in the world at developing youth and the best players in the world might be coming through Dortmund. Why isn't that more attractive to a coach that wants to come in and is a great developer of talent, right? I mean, hell, even like go get Marcelo Bielsa or something like that. Like there's got to be, you know, coaches who are really excited by that. And yet, everything in the aftermath of Klopp has been fairly underwhelming. I mean, Thomas Tuchel had some decent moments. He's gone on to manage PSG, but then they have Favre now. It seems, though, the the issue there is coaching. But also, in some ways, they do bring it upon themselves. In If their idea is to buy the best young players in the world and have them develop at Dortmund, then you're going to have the inconsistencies of playing young players as much as they do. Yeah, there's a good story by Rory Smith in the New York Times last week about this. And I get into it in my chapter on Michael Zork, the sporting director for forever at Dortmund, who's extremely good at his job. So I had a, a book chapter on him. And he he's straight up about it. He's like, look, we have a twofold strategy here at Dortmund. We aspire to win trophies and to be among the top eight teams in Europe every year. 
and at the same time be developing the best young players in the world at Dortmund. And what we've got to try and do is balance that out because we have the highest average attendance in the world and those people don't care about our balance sheet of selling and buying players. They want to win. And, and that is the challenge. And, and part of the issue, though, is, is that Dortmund really hasn't challenged for the Bundesliga title. They've, they've sort of been in it for a while now without ever like taking it like to the final game or two. And, and not since Klopp have they won it. And, and, and so I, I do think there is some frustration there. And one thing I never got into in my book chapter on Zork that hearing what you're saying about coaches makes me wonder, Zork has so much power there. And is, he's been there for over 20 years. He is basically Mr. Dortmund sporting director, but he sits on the bench during games and he's the head coach's boss. And I wonder if there's something like coaches might be wary of that. Mm-hmm. As in, good in, some a, ways, in some ways, you can only get a coach and not a manager, right? Like, and there is a difference in the club game in those two things. Because I, I do remember in my book chapter on Zora getting into like Tuchel got fired right after winning the German Cup and and finishing top two, I think, mm-hmm. his final season. And I, I, I just remember he had had um, uh, Tuchel had had a big dust up with Sven Mislintat, who was at the time the top lieutenant for Zork, at you know it's like director of scouting I think, and basically there was a power struggle. Tuchel lost it, loses his job, ends up going to PSG. Obviously, Mislintat ends up leaving. He's at Stuttgart now. Zork's still there. Zork's not leaving Dortmund. And, and so I, I do think that's that's interesting. He's Dortmund bred. He's viewed as the best sporting director in the world. But in terms of getting a, like a, a coach there, I do wonder if like Nagelsmann's like, nah, just not interested in that. Yeah, and uh, that makes complete sense. You know, from a power standpoint, you'd want to be the be the guy that is kind of in charge of if you're if you're Maurizio Pochettino, right? I actually think Pochettino would be a great manager for Dortmund. Doesn't that, doesn't that make complete sense? Marriage between style and and kind of, and the kind of club that it is, but maybe you want more power over transfers. You don't want to be kind of overwhelmed as probably Pochettino was by Daniel Levy, which is why he ended up leaving in the end. So uh, there, you probably do limit the field of potential candidates by you know kind of being that much of a dilettante about who you know about the, the the way that you run your team. Let's look at one other team in Europe that's that's struggling right now: Barcelona uh, under Ronald Koeman, two-two tie against Valencia over the weekend, highlighted by. Uh, Serginho Des starting against Eunice Musa. I think first time two U.S. Mm-hmm. men's national team eligible players are uh, going up against each other uh, in Spain. Um, and it's interesting because I don't, I kind of wonder heading into this season if Messi would just go through the motions after the whole thing that went on between him and, and Barcelona over the summer uh, or right before the season started. Um, and I don't think I would say that's true about Messi. I, I, I think he's 
I don't think he's going through the motions. I do think he's he's still scoring goals. He's dropped off a little bit, uh, in my opinion. But it, it, like, it's much more dramatic to me how much Jaden Sancho has dropped off for Dortmund since his move didn't happen than Lionel Messi. And I think Jaden Sancho has no reason for that. To be yeah. to be honest, you know, Messi's getting older, so okay. Um, but you know, Barcelona ended up being, you know, pretty good in Champions League, except for one game where they ended up going from first to second in the group, which could cause problems for them. But they they didn't slip up in a big, big way in Champions League so far. In the league, though, not great. And, and I'm wondering what you would prescribe at this point for Barcelona. Yeah, and I've actually had the chance to kind of watch a, a few of their games and see that there are moments where they look like Barcelona, right? Where they look like a team that can break sides down, quick passing, good movements in the area. Um, I would just say that their forward players probably aren't good enough, right? I mean, you know, other than Messi, there's a lot of Martin Braithwaite. There's a lot of Antoine Griezmann who's not playing particularly well. I mean, I think Pedri's been, you know, a good you know, youthful addition, but at the same time, it doesn't give you that same goal-scoring punch that you probably need if you're going to play uh, 4-2-3-1. So, I mean, unless Messi is doing it, there are moments where they create a ton of chances and it doesn't lead to much. And then you look at their results in the league, there are seven draws plus losses and there's six wins. So they're more often not winning than they are winning. So uh, you couple that with that pretty, you know, significant humiliation at the hands of Juventus. I actually think you know, if Barcelona ever got to a good financial place and maybe they sold Griezmann for a bunch of money and were able to at least get some of that money back and sold Coutinho for a bunch of money, were able to at least recoup some of their costs. If if they were to build reasonably well, they've found some good young players, Sergio Des being among them and Pedri. And at the same time, it's that top-end talent, right? You need top-end talent in order in order to be Barcelona, right? I also think they're kind of going through a crisis at center back where I don't know if that next generation of center backs is coming through. I mean, you know, PK and Mascherano were such a key part of what they did. And obviously, Carlos Puyol before that. There isn't a PK, a Puyol, a Mascherano coming, uh, you know, in, in, in the crop of guys that they have. So I think that there's just some concerns with how they're built right now, both for in the short term and the long term. And it's kind of going to need a lot of money and or some incredible talents to emerge in order to fix. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but over the weekend came this announcement that another exclusive interview with Lionel Messi is about to come out. And the promise was that what he he said something that will, quote, shock the world. Mm. I have no idea if that's BS or not. But I do wonder, just from a timing perspective, we could be finding out, right, as soon as January, if Messi signs a pre-contract yeah. with someone else. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be, you know, Messi to PSG or Messi to City is done, right? I mean, it, like, that, can be, that could probably be announced on Jan 1. Because remember, I mean, Christian Pulisic happened on Jan 1, didn't it? It was slightly different because the actual transfer sure. happened in that January and window, and then they loaned him back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I the only other, like, big... Like, I, I don't know if listeners know this. You can sign a pre-contract mm-hmm. within the six months before the end of your contract somewhere. Messi's deal expires with Barcelona at the end of this season. The Like, David Beckham to LA Galaxy was another early January thing where Beckham's Real Madrid deal ran out. And at the, the end of that season, 06-07, and so it was this bomb that went off when when Beckham signed. So 
I do wonder. In, in fact, if I was a reporter on the ground in, in Barcelona, like I would be all over trying to find out if something's going to come out of this. But mm-hmm. And I have no idea if anything is because this so-called interview coming out is potentially something to, to keep an eye on. But could you imagine what it would be like if like Messi announced he was going somewhere else, like what the last half of the season with Barcelona would be like. Right. I mean, you know, Champions League still to come and, and all that. Yeah. I mean, it would be, you know, complete chaos. Right. But I mean, in some ways, this is what Messi has been wanting to do. Right. He wasn't able to do it. Uh, but in some ways, he kind of does want to make it hurt for Barcelona a little bit, which unfortunately does tarnish his legacy at the club. But in some ways, the hierarchy there sort of deserve it, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, and there's a lot of upheaval there, too. Uh, you're going to have new... Uh, presidency, new new cabinet coming in there at, at, at the club. And, and, you know, you hope for the sake of Barcelona, they can get some stability there because I think that's really impacted things on the field over the last couple of years. We should mention, by the way, that Messi scored his 643rd goal career for Barcelona over the weekend, tying Pelé for the most goals ever scored for one club. Pelé did that with Santos. And it just reminded me once again how incredible it is that Messi has been with one club since the age of 13. And, you know, you just don't really see that anymore. It's, it's a, it's a pretty incredible achievement. Uh, some pretty kind of cool interactions between Messi and Pele over the weekend on social media that were fun to follow. But yeah, it's uh strange times over at Barcelona these days. And I'm curious to see if they can move up in the league or if they'll continue sort of in this fifth, sixth, seventh place area that they've been in for a while. Uh, Before we get going to Caleb Porter, I did want to point out Weston McKinney and Sam Mewis win the U.S. Soccer 2020 Players of the Year awards on the men's and women's side. I have no issue with with these choices. I, you know, I think you know, not many national team games this year for one thing for the men or the women. Weston McKenney goes to Juventus and especially lately has just been fantastic. Seems to have like won something close to a regular starting spot there in the midfield brings a ton of energy for them. Sam Mewis is kind of a stud, including scoring goals for Manchester City, which I don't know if any of us were expecting. I guess I might have voted for Crystal Dunn um, on the women's side. I, I think she's sort of perennially underrated and and disrespected, but, but it, it's hard when Sam Mewis has been as good as she's been, I think. I would argue on the men's side that I don't think that anyone played at the level that Christian Pulisic did in July and August. I mean, just in terms of, you know, quality of player. I do think it's, it, first off, Pulisic's going to win that award a bunch. Uh, but second, I do think it's good to reward McKenning for getting that move um, and obviously what he did in order to achieve that. And then succeeding, as you said, I, I saw, um, I, I watched the extended highlights of Juve's game against Atalanta and McKenney could have had a hat trick of assists in that game. I thought he was yeah. brilliant. And we talked about obviously the discipline of the role that he's now being asked to play and how well he's playing it. I think he's been a fantastic addition to Juventus, full stop. And I think now, um, I don't know how much of the Brian Reynolds rumors that you've seen, but he's kind of the next American that's been linked with some big clubs. You know, Roma, Club Brugge are in for him. Apparently Milan sniffed around. But, you know, if Brian Reynolds, a right back for FC Dallas, goes to Roma, all of a sudden it, it starts to become a trend, right? You know, 
trends come in threes. Now trends are like coming in sevens because I think you're seeing some clubs saying, hey, there might be some value in MLS. Let's see if we can find it scouted uh, and kind of be ahead of the curve here. This is a new frontier. Whereas, you know, if you're an Argentinian under 20, scores a goal in their domestic league, it's a $15 million fee. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe in America you can get, or in, in MLS you can get that same player for half the price and maybe they've proven more. So um, I'm starting to wonder if clubs are seeing the U.S. as a frontier to get some new talent. It looks like that may be the case, which is exciting, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say I am really enjoying just the regularity now of watching games from Europe with the biggest teams involving American players. And it's constant. It's hard to keep up with, actually. I kind of love it, though. You know, just on my phone today, I have the FOTMOB set up to, for each individual player, it can tell me, are they starting? Have they, have they come on to the, you know, into the game? You know, Tim Weah came on in the, uh, the Lille game against PSG, one versus two in France. And, you know, didn't do anything huge in the game, but still, you just think of how many examples we're seeing like that right now, which is pretty fun. For sure. I and mean, Wea being one, I have, I have my Reggie Cannon notifications for whenever he plays for Boa Fista. Like, you know, like they're, you're, you're always following these players and seeing what they can do. Yeah. Pretty cool. But uh, in any case, Chris, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Grant. This episode is brought to you by a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action in Spain's La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device. Whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina, as well as the Copa Libertadores. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Caleb Porter. Our guest now is Columbus Crew coach Caleb Porter, who just won the second MLS Cup title of his career with a 3-0 win over the Seattle Sounders. Caleb, congratulations to you and your team, and great to have you on the show. Thanks, Grant. It's good to uh, catch up with you, as always. Yeah, really fired up to have you on, and and lots to talk about, but uh, just a, a tremendous team performance in the final, you know, Lucas Elrayon was the star, but your whole team showed up to play, including unexpected standouts like 19-year-old Aiden Morris. Could you take me back to the exact moment when you learned that you would not have Darlington Nagby and Pedro Santos available for the final and what your first thoughts were at that very moment? Yeah, I've shared this. I've gotten that question couple times and um the first couple times i lied about it <laughs> you know as coaches we you know we give the political answers right but i finally just said you know what and i'll do the same with you i'm gonna be honest about it 
um, comfortable enough in my in myself and my my own skin that uh, I I cried. I literally uh, one of the few times I'm not a big crier, but uh, I cried. And um, my wife actually took a picture of it, which I was mad at after. It wasn't like a picture where she was trying to joke about it, but it was more like I never seen you like this and you're so tough. And I think it was a culmination of just the whole year and all the things I dealt with and all, all the moments I had to be so strong. And as I was getting ready two days to play in an MLS Cup final to, to top off and complete an unbelievable run and year and battle through everything. And I get a call that I'm, I've lost arguably my best player who makes us go, moves our team in the midfield on top of losing probably our second best scorer in Pedro Santos. Um, and I just, you know, I was certainly with, with my relationship with Darlington um, probably made it a little bit more emotional and sensitive. I'll admit that. Um, but it was less, it was actually less about how can we win the game? It was more about it, it, it was, it felt unfair, you know, for a guy like him to not be able to play in the final him and Pedro working so hard all year. Uh, Darlington obviously coming here to be with me, to be in Ohio, to win a trophy, his his third. And the fact that he couldn't play in that game, it just, you know, I was mad at life at that moment. I, I really was. And I and I cried for a second. And then I do what I always do. I pick myself back up and then figure out how I can find a way to win the game and make it a good story and a good ending. Thanks for your honesty there. Uh, I wasn't totally expecting that, but that's appreciated. Um <laughs> In terms of trying to to Burn figure out, <laughs> in terms of trying to figure out like how to to deal with that, what once you did start to think about it, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I always look at moments of adversity, and I've had a lot of them in my life, not just in football, but in just a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I look at them those moments as opportunities to kind of grow and. I think that those moments define you as a person and they shape you as a person. And uh, I've always been a growth mindset guy, not a fixed mindset guy and growth mindset. People use those moments to, to grow, to lead, um, to be empathetic um, under challenges. I think you really, you really find out what you're made of, and what you're about. Um, so this was, this was no different. You know, I looked at it as an opportunity, like, like I had, in many days and many moments all, all year where I would rely on my relationships, you know, rely on my um, leadership, rely on my mental toughness and rely on the team that we built, you know, and the culture that we built, I uh, knew it would be tough. The, the biggest thing was just telling the team, you know, and uh, I think what made it even tougher was, you know, we, you have to get the second positive to confirm it. And, and I, kind of thought, well, maybe it's a false, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then in the morning, Darlington retested and couldn't train, obviously. So he was out, but I told the team there's a chance, false positive. We'll know later. And then mid training, um, my tra trainer kind of, which is rare, inched over to me while I was coaching and, you know, kind of whispered, whispered in my ear that it was confirmed. And um, so I continued with the training, didn't miss a beat, but on my mind the whole time. And at the end I pulled the guys in and I just said, Hey, listen, guys, I want you to hear from me. I don't want you to get it from an email, but I, you know, I look, I want to look him in the eyes and tell him like Darlington is out now. And um, I said, it's tough. I said, it's, we've had a lot of tough moments. This is as tough as it gets. 
but I said, think about him, you know, how he feels not being able to play in the final, having worked so hard, think about Pedro. And I said, I don't need to think about anything else other than we're going to win this game and we're going to win it for, for obviously our goals that we've worked on and talked about all year, but we're going to win it for them even more so. Um, and, I, and they all nodded and it was a, it was a kind of a cool moment. And I remember thinking when I left, like, wow, like they, they gave me the feeling that we're going to do this. Now, 2020, you and I were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. It's just been this extraordinary year all around. And we've, we've, it's been tragic in many ways. We've lost, you know, 300,000 Americans at this point. Uh, families have been hit really hard. All of us, you know, a lot of people have lost jobs. Um, you, you talked about crying, like, you know, I, and most of us, I've cried at various points this year. Um, yeah. how is winning a title in, in, in a year that's been like this and all this stuff that everyone has been through, but including your team, does that, does it resonate even more with you to be able to, to do this? That's a, that's a tough, that's a good question. It's a tough question. You know, um, we all have jobs to do, right? And so there's, there's a part of that that you, you have to think about, you know, and my job's like any other job. I, I get paid to do it. I support my family doing it. I, if you're lucky and you have a job you like, which I do, um, I do it because I like to do it. You know, in the times that we didn't have the opportunity to train and our season was postponed, I think like a lot of people, I felt like a fish out of water. I learned why I like to work, why, why I like to do what I do. It reminds you of that. So I don't, I don't want to say that like my job's more important than COVID or, or people dying or the things that were happening. Um, but, but I think it did for me become a beacon of hope and light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it reminded me, my players and hopefully everybody else, the supporters, why, why you support teams, why sports are there, especially at the professional level, the entertainment the opportunity to watch something on the weekend that brings joy to you. It brings meaning to what you're doing. Um, and I thought about that a lot this year. I talked about that a lot with our, with our players of how in, in a year with a pandemic and a lot of stuff off the field happening with social injustices occurring, um, what great opportunity for us to ignite a community, to bring some light, in, in some darkness, some dark times, and to really make memories, to come together, to use our vehicle as a professional organization, coaches, players, to um, give people hope, give people something to think about, get excited about, um, and show, you know, show even more so our character as players, as people, and as a team, um, that we can come together and do something special for the community and for the game. Obviously, Columbus fans have been through a lot these last three years, including thinking they were going to lose their team. Now they know their team's going to stay in the city. There are committed owners. There's a new stadium being built. There are new trophies being won. How would you describe the way people there are feeling these days about the Columbus crew? Pretty exciting. You know, I've picked my jobs carefully. I'm a loyal guy. I, I don't 
take jobs to leave those jobs. I don't take jobs to for the money. Um, the money's nice, of course, <laughs> but it's not why I do this. Um, you know, I pick jobs because I want to be in those jobs and um, ideally leave those jobs better than they were and, and to feel good about what I did, even just feel good about what I left as far as legacy. And of course, feel good about the players I worked with, the teams that I worked with. Um, I know it's cliche, but life is short and I see my role way bigger than wins. You know, there was a time where maybe I didn't get that. Um, but as I've gotten older, you know, it, it, it's, it's really been my purpose is to go into communities, take those teams, you know, ignite those people, get them excited about their city, get them excited about their team and represent that city and bring a lot of attention to those cities. And so I've been careful in kind of picking cities that fit a little bit where I want to live, where my, where I want to take my family. And um, when you, I've been very proud when you look at Akron, when you look at Portland, you look at Columbus, there's similarities. But I think in all those situations, I've been able to leave good memories there, shake hands on the way out. And um, I felt very good about what I've done in those places, not just on the pitch, but off. You just won your second MLS title. Your first one came in 2015 with Portland. That game happened to be in Columbus. Here you are again, five years later. The experience of this title run compared to the last one, was it was it a lot different? I think it was um, because I'm, I'm different, you know, a little bit. I think we're, we all become different stages in our lives, different people, and we grow. And I'm very different than I was five years ago. Um, not, not completely. You know, I'm still the same, generally the same guy. But, um, you know, I think I just have a, a little bit different perspective. And um, part of that I went through in, in just leaving Portland and, you know, having some time to think and wonder why I do this. And, um, you know, so I, I felt a lot of joy in every, every stop that I've been Um which is why I picked jobs so carefully, why I picked Columbus, because I just saw the vision they had, the Haslam, the Edwards ownership groups, a new training ground, a new stadium. Um, you know, I kind of had a, a vision that this was a sleeping giant, you know, an old old team with a good tradition, with a lot of history, but needed a little bit of renovation, new energy, needed to be reinvigorated. And a uh, world-class city, actually. Columbus, people don't realize just how special Columbus is. Um, it's an unbelievable city. It's, it's 11th largest. People don't realize that the downtown, what it's like, um, the people as a, as a place to raise my family, it's just an unbelievable. So, um, even this off season, just getting the amount of interest from free agents and, and, and people, you know, it's exciting because I think we're moving in a new era where, you know, Columbus wasn't necessarily, you know, a stop that you would think about wanting to be at, you know, and you had the old old Betts training facility, the first training facility, the old stadium, you know, which was had history, but um, it's just, it's really exciting where we're at right now. Um, but I would say that every stop it's meant a lot to win a trophy. And I've, I've had a lot of good people that I've worked with in every stop that I'll never forget. I have a lot of love for the people in Portland um, in that city the organization, Merritt and Gavin, you know, there's a lot been talked about that. I got nothing for, but love for those people. Uh, same at Akron. And uh, we're on a really good path here in Columbus and I'm enjoying things. And I, I would say, Grant, that's where it's different for me. I used to coach with a chip on my shoulder. I still have a chip, 
but that used to be why I coached. I, I would coach to prove, prove myself, to prove that I could win, to prove that I was one of the best, to prove that I could win. And um, I don't coach for that anymore. I coach just to be happy in what I'm doing and to serve the people that I, I work with and to collaborate with top people and to be a leader and, um, again, to leave a legacy in these places and to make these clubs better. I'm a, I'm a steward of each club. And I didn't really get that until I started doing this long term. And, um, you know, I don't it's not about me. It's not about me at all. It's about, you know, um, the people that I serve. It's about a club. It's about all the people that are a part of this. And so that's what really gets me going is the people that I work with and, and just being happy and enjoying coaching. That's that's really why I do it. I don't do it to prove anything. It hits me hearing you say this. Like I, I've had some fun on Twitter over the years. There's these gifts of moments of you having your moments with Oscar Pereja once and and Bruce Arena during a Galaxy Timbers game. And I'm trying to think if there was one with Schmetzer even back in the day. But <laughs> but yeah. But like and I've sort of posted these things because they're out there and it's kind of fun. But none of those are from really recent times from your time with the crew. And I'm wondering, is that an example potentially of how you've changed? The pep, you forgot the pep one. The or pep you, one, which, which was yeah. not your fault. You, the, you were the recipient on that yeah. one. The, the weird thing about all those is, of course, I mean, I was, you know, chip on, talk about chip on the shoulder, I had it. But in none of those did I... Um, I don't know where those came from, but I think it was probably just in general, the vibe that I gave off to the other coach, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I, I don't apologize at all for being that way because that's helped me get to where I I've gotten, I've had to fight for everything. And um, not many guys have taken the path I've taken it. And actually no one recently, has, has taken that path. So, you know, I think that's where the chip comes. I've, I've had to prove myself. I had to, had, I've had to prove doubters wrong. Um, and I, but I've also recognized that I've come off sometimes in a way that's not truly me. Um, you know, if, if you want to know what I'm like, Grant, you ask the players, they're the only ones that know my assistant coaches. Um, no one else knows what I'm like. I don't really share that. Um, I'm, I'm a humble guy. I don't act humble in a game when I'm trying to win. I'm, I'm fighting for my team and my players in that win. Uh, I'm not humble with the media. Um, although I've learned to be more normal um, and not as guarded and not as intense and not as, you know, indirectly or directly, like I don't care um, about the media. Um, because I've learned, as fluffy as it sounds, to empathize a little more. So I empathize with everybody. And I stay present more, which allows me to empathize more. Um, but I've always been the same guy inside the locker room, always. I've been a guy that fights for my players. I've been a guy that loves my players. I've been a guy that leads them, pushes them, demands a lot, but with uh, so much care for them. And um, that's never changed. I've never changed. Um, you know, what I've changed is sharing a little more, being a little more normal outside of uh, what, you know, the, what I viewed always is the most important time to be myself. You were out of coaching for a year in 2018 after you decided to leave Portland. 
why did you feel you needed a year off? What did you spend the year doing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, I had seven years at Akron, got the opportunity, Portland. I really can't thank the Portland organization enough because they gave me my, my chance to be in, in MLS, you know, Merritt and Gavin, um, a lot of good years there. Uh, still remember so much positive there. Great players, great teams. Um, if you can script, script it the right way, you want to go in a place, you want to stay, you want to be loyal and you want to win and then you want to leave it, it with a positive. And I was able to do that in two clubs. So I just felt like after that last season, we had won the, won the West. Um, so it was a good year. We won a trophy in, you know, two years prior. It just felt like as I had a week, it didn't, it didn't happen right away. But after a week of sitting in the off season, I just kind of felt, you know what? My job here is done. I've given what I can give. The club is in a good spot. I can't give anything more. I knew the cycle of the team. I knew what was ahead. And I was honest enough and humble enough to say, they need a new leader. They need a new coach. It's good for you. It's also good for me. I need a new project. I need a new goal. Um, and, and so that's what happened. And uh, shook hands and still have great relationships with those guys. A lot was made of it. It was really very similar to what Greg Vanny just did, if you really think about it. I was just one of the first guys to do it, you know, and usually you're getting fired and, you know, or you're kicked out or, you know, guys leave when their contract's up. Um, you know, so I think it's something that happens a lot in Europe, um, you know, and I just felt it was time, you know, and I was honest about it, you know, so I don't know that I necessarily needed a break, um, although it was good for me to have a break. Uh, and it was good for me to just kind of time, take time to figure out the next job to take where I could do what I did at Portland and do what I did at Akron. At Columbus, you're working with, among other people, team president Tim Bezbachenko, who's had his own success at Toronto before coming to the crew. How would you describe the way you work together with Bez? Great. Um, First off, he's an awesome guy, a good person, really smart, um, competitive like I am, um, young and driven and passionate. And um, so we work really well together. Uh, And and what I would say, Grant, is I learned as well uh, over time to just work better with with people and to share. You know, when when I'm at Akron, it's, it's my program. I'm the CEO of everything, you know, and... At Portland, it took me a little bit just to kind of get used to people giving their opinions in, you know, in, in, I guess my, what I viewed as my uh, team. And I learned, especially at the end of Portland, that it's, it's not my team. It's the club. It's the club's team. It's, and I'm a part of it. And yes, I'm the figurehead in a lot of ways. And yes, I'm making a lot of those big decisions. Um, but I need to flip my mindset and understand that there's a lot of learning to be done with a lot of people that are in those clubs around me. And I need to know what I'm good at too. And I'm I'm good at coaching. Uh, I'm I'm not good at numbers. I'm not good at the cap, not good at contracts. I don't want any part of that. I'm not passionate about that. So to have a guy like Gavin Wilkinson um, around me at Portland, helped me do what I do best. Um, and to have a guy like Tim Bezmachenko around me and Pat Onstead, um, who also does a lot for our club, it makes 
me better because I can focus on what, I, what I'm good at. I, I don't think the model of doing it all is, is an easy model. You know, when you look at coaches in Europe, they don't do the contracts. They don't. So I think there, there've been some rare coaches like Bruce that could do it. I don't know how he does it. I really don't. I know Burhalter did, but uh, I'm glad this off season that I don't have to talk about contracts with guys. I can recharge and study the game and watch film and, focus on my my training sessions that I'm going to run and how I can improve on those things because that's what I'm good at. And Tim is Tim is the Tim is unbelievable at the cap. He's like a mad scientist. I don't know how he figures out, you know, he worked in the league. So when you really think about it, it was a genius signing, you know, for Tim Laiwiki to bring him in because he he's a capologist. He knows every loophole and every little um, you know, way that you can get an advantage and um, but what I'd say about Tim that people don't know is he knows the game well, too. Mm-hmm. You know, knows the game and he's got a good eye for talent. And he knows he knows winners. He knows winners. And I think he's a winner. And that's why we work well together, because, um, pe- you know, pe- people that are winners like to be with other winners. You know, it, it seems like Columbus is one of a few teams in MLS that puts a lot of stock in sports science, things like the use of analytics, is that accurate from your perspective? And, and who do you view as the teams in the league sort of being on the cutting edge when it comes to those types of things? Yeah, it's very accurate. I mean, that's that's the way of a modern club is, you know, I view myself as a, as a mix of old school and new school. Um, I have a lot of old school influences. And I think the old school man management art, um, locker room, the culture, some of those things, I think in some of the guys that are really new school, they lose that that little bit of art in the man management sometimes and that appreciation for a locker room, a holistic locker room, not a forced culture, but a, a real locker room. You know, the, the accountability, the responsibility, how you create a spirit, how you have a hierarchy, how you get the most out of, the, out of your guys. Um, but I also think if you're just old school, right? You miss opportunities in the sports science and performance in the analytics. Um, and so I've, I've really tried to blend the two, you know, I don't think that you can coach a team through analytics. Um, for sure, the sports science, you know, getting your team fit doesn't mean you're going to, you know, win games, but 100% those are big, massive parts of winning games. And if you're going to tell me that that, that um, my training session needs to be 30 seconds longer or the recovery needs to be a minute you know, less, or if you're telling me this drill on this day is a little bit better, I'm going to listen to you. And if you and I and that's what's happened over the last three, four years, I've refined my methodology based on aligning my tactical periodization with the physical physical periodization to create a morph cycle where I feel like we're we're really really dialed in every single day tactically and physically and from an analytic standpoint of course we we all have a feel on what we see and what we think is happening but getting confirmation and even evidence that might challenge our eye or our feel is really really important and today's players, they want to know if it was a hard session, they want to really see the evidence that it was hard. If a player plays well, he wants the evidence. And today's player is very visual. 
and they want the truth all the time. And it used to be like when my dad told me something or when my coach told me something, I just listened. Well, nowadays you'll tell them something, they want to see it and they want to make sure that it's the truth. And so I think the analytics are really important just to make sure that you're doing the right things and that your feel is accurate. And it's, in a lot of ways, I think it's challenged sometimes um, maybe what I thought was happening and it opens my eyes to better decisions. We're winding down here with Caleb Porter. Really appreciate you taking the time. Within the context recently of Jesse Marsh and Pellegrino Matarazzo, I, I recently got asked which other American coaches I thought might be interested in coaching in Europe at some point. And it was a little hard for me to answer, to be honest, because I do think there are American coaches who could do well in Europe in addition to those guys. But I don't know if they're interested in coaching in Europe. Are, are you interested in doing that at some point? I think it's not that we're interested. It's that people aren't interested in us enough because we're American. Um, and I think what's hopefully happening is we're earning respect, you know? And I think the best thing is when we get all these top coaches coming into our league, I have a chance to measure myself against those guys because a lot of those guys have been in Europe. They've been in top clubs. And I find it very interesting that a guy like Velko Panovic doesn't do well in MLS, but gets a job over in Europe. That would never happen if he was American. And that's He's doing that's, well at Reading, by the way. <laughs> exactly. My point is, I think Velko was a good coach, but good coaches still fail or don't succeed. But for some reason, there's a stigma with the American coach that's a little bit different. Um, and, and I think it just comes down to just earning our respect and our stripes. And um, I think they're – I did my pro license – so, you know, you have opinions of coaches and um, after the pro license, I can tell you this, there's some unbelievable American coaches that could easily coach uh, anywhere. They just need to be given the opportunity. And when you see a Jesse Marsh, he's a, he's a great pioneer in a lot of ways. And Bob Bradley was, and because all it takes is someone to say, okay, well, Jesse was in the league and Jesse was competing with, um, whoever, Peter Vermes. And, and so why would you not take Peter Vermes or why would you not take whoever? Um, you know, and it's ticking me off a little bit that Jesse's over there and I'm not. <laughs> it, it, my competitor, it, I mean that in a good way. Jesse's a friend of mine, you know. Um, but I think the thing with Jesse is he's brave. He's very brave and he's very ambitious. Um, but uh I think it's going to happen more and more similar to when the floodgates open on American players and they start to get a chance. And now you're looking at some of the offers going into, into players. It's like the American player right now, especially the holding mids and outside backs are like the hot player in the world that people are going to give lots of money to because they see, um, you know, what, what the players are doing, you know, in Europe right now. So just to end up here, I'm, I'm curious, what do you do between now and next season? How do you try and get Columbus even better? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting going back to the last time I won the MLS Cup. Looking back, because of the way I was wired, I never really relaxed after. And it was like the next day I'm in the office and the next day I'm ready to win again. And it's like, you know, um, that 
you know, sickness of trying to achieve perfection to a fault. And I never enjoyed it. I never relaxed. I never recharged. And I'm very balanced right now. You know, I, I, I love the game. I watch games. I study still. But, um, you know, there are a lot of things I do outside the game, too. Spend time with my family. I love my family. Um, I like to get away from the game at times and recharge. And, and so, I don't know. I'm happy with this year. I'm happy with the trophy. I'm really happy for my guys. I'm happy for the club. Um, you know, when we pick back up, if there's a game in front of me, there's a training. I got a lot of pride. If there's a training session in front of me, um, you know, I'm going to want to win every game next year and win a trophy again. But right now I'm just enjoying kind of what we did and drinking a beer with you and talking soccer. <laughs> it's actually really nice. Cause I think, uh, I have always thought this, that whenever you and I do an interview and it's been a little while, but I, it'll always be a good interview. I'll always learn something and I always appreciate your willingness to, to take the time and, and reveal something of yourself when you don't absolutely have to. So thank you. It's because of you. It's because of you. You're a good guy. Much respect for you, Grant. And uh, uh, you've done a lot, you know, in terms of your coverage and, and articles and interviews. And so our, you know, you respect people, you know, for, doing the right things. And I think you're a guy that, you know, has your heart's in the right place. Appreciate that. Caleb Porter, now a two-time MLS Cup winning coach. Congratulations. Enjoy the holidays. Sounds good, Grant. You too. Take care, all right? Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Caleb Porter as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.